Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. Today's a very important topic, particularly if you are a parent or if you are under 18 years old and listening to the podcast. It's because I have uh, the honor of having his honor, the chief presiding judge of the Fulton County Juvenile Court, Judge Bradley Boyd, is joining us to talk about um, what happens in juvenile court? Welcome. Thank you. So you have been a judge for a very long time and practicing law, and I understand we'll be retiring soon from the bench. I will start at the end of the year. Um, I've been a judge for, it'll be oh, about 13 years, although I've been doing, I've been in, employed at the juvenile court since well, for a little over 46 years. So you have seen quite a change in the work of the court from 46 years ago to now in, in so many different ways. Just overall, before we start getting into the actual business of the court, what are some of the things that you've seen over the years in terms of the shift of the work of the court and the young people that appear before you in that court? Um, well, I do recall in, in about 1986, I think, is when crack cocaine really sort of exploded on the streets of Atlanta. And that made a huge impact uh, because that has sort of a cascading effect in terms of uh, what young people got involved with and what the um, and how that causes other things that they get involved with. Uh, because there were drugs being sold um, they're young people that we probably used to see coming in for shoplifting discovered that you don't have to shoplift, that you can make money selling drugs. And so they, we saw shoplifting cases plummet dramatically at about the same time that drug cases were going, drug possession cases were going up for some of the juveniles. And, um, Getting into that whole culture of the drugs and distribution, there's a lot of money floating around in that environment. And because it was attached to the drug trade, um, people couldn't really rely on law enforcement to sort of protect them and their assets. And so they decided they need to protect themselves and gun charges went up. At the same time, drugs hit the street, so did guns. And then um, drugs started getting exchanged for stolen cars, or cars would get stolen and exchanged for cash to buy drugs. It just sort of, it was this network that sort of grew out of this explosion of drugs on the street. And then on the other side of the coin, there are parents that now are getting involved with drugs, and we were seeing child welfare cases developing because of children that were being neglected or abused or um, 
had to be taken into care because parents were becoming unable uh, to care for them. So that side of the juvenile court business went up as well. So that was a big change, and that was about 1986 in Georgia. Um, it was earlier at other places, but that is, um, now that's, you know, 20, 30 years ago, but that that was a big shift. And then since that time, um, those major kinds of um, offenses um, have become predominant in the way that we look at um, what's going on in the community. And your answer kind of points out something that a lot of folks may not realize, because I think we all recognize juvenile court as a place for criminal cases to go for minors. You know, when you're accused and prosecuted, um, you are not part of the adult system, although there can be things where you are a juvenile and in the adult justice system, but that in general, you have that category cases that you handle as a juvenile court judge, but you also deal with the welfare of the child, neglect, um, and situations that are needing families needing supervision for the protection and welfare of the child as well. Is that right? Yes. When, you know, children can get removed from their parents for any number of reasons. And uh, when the Department of Child Welfare, whatever it is in, that very, in the various states, take that action, they need to bring the matter to a court. And the courts are then charged with determining whether or not the removal of that child is necessary for the safety of the child, because we also know that when you remove a child from home, even though some bad things may be happening there, just the removal from parents can be very traumatic for a child and can have significant impacts on them, sometimes long term. So you really have to make some determination as to whether or not uh, the child needs to be removed, and then if so, Plans need to be developed as to what kinds of services need to be put in place so the parents can eventually get those children back and, and to monitor the progress on those case plans. And the truth is that in the court that I work in, and I, I don't know about courts nationally, but the court that I work in, really more time, more judicial time, is spent working on child welfare issues than it is on child on juvenile delinquency issues. Interesting, because because from listening to the news, you would think really the opposite. Because we talk about the supposed growth of crime, that younger people are involved in more serious things than back in the days. You know, if we go back to the fifties and your ideas of what young people were doing or not doing. Um, but that the child welfare part, I, I, you, you surprised me when you shared that to me before we started the podcast. And yet, as I think about it, and we think about all the struggles families have financially and themselves navigating a very difficult world that we're in right now um, with a lot of differences, um, socioeconomic, racial injustices that affect how that parent or family can provide for their child. It creates issues for a court to be able to have to deal with. Right. And in the last 10, 15 years, research that's been done on child development has started to really have an impact on the way that courts operate. And what we've learned is that, as I mentioned, removal of a child can be very traumatic. Other kinds of things, neglect of a child while they're growing up, can have significant trauma effects on a child to the point where it actually impairs brain development as they're growing. Mental health issues Mental that health later issues. manifest into very serious things, which you can either lead to 
needing help that may not be so available. You know, we've right. had other podcasts talking about the lack of mental health services available to the public at large. Um, and so that's a disconcerting thing, too, because I'm, I'm assuming you may see a situation as a judge and you're looking for a solution and there may it, having those services or do you struggle to find services that will work with these um, young people that who are neglected and there for welfare reasons before you? They're not easy issues. I mean, you, you need to look for services and what the child needs. You also look at what the parent needs and there's a cycle. You know, if parents have been traumatized, if they've been raised in neglectful or harmful situations, they don't have a good um, background. They don't have the tools that they may need to be parents. And, and sometimes their children will end up having the same kind of difficulties that they had. So even though you're a juvenile court, you obviously have the authority over the child, but you also then, in essence, have authority over the adults as well in terms of coming up with reunification right. plans or or plans. that, and Because that's something you don't think about, that the, an adult is under the auspices of a juvenile court. We have at our court, and there are a number of courts nationally, that have family treatment courts. Uh, and those are designed to deal with parents who have lost custody of their kids, usually because of uh, substance abuse and addiction issues. So the child can get removed, and you want to, as best you can, maintain the connection with the parents' visitation. You want the parent to get themselves together to get off drugs. They may have, they may have lost homes. They may have lost jobs. There's a lot of things that need to be put back together for the parent. And there are special courts that will bring parents in. Sometimes they come in every week to get make sure they're um, complying with the treatment pro programs and the treatment plans that have been set up for them. And you really try to push them, encourage them, uh, because ultimately if they can get things together, that child gets to go home. The family gets to be put back together, and the child is less at risk for other problems later than if they have to be bounced around in the foster care system indefinitely. And how much supervision or input do you have on the foster care system as a juvenile court judge? We have quite a bit, actually. Um, the um, We must, first of all, make a determination whether the child's removal was necessary, uh, and that hinges on whether the child is, is it harmed or is in danger in a situation, um, when I first came into the system, and you know, any child where it, if the home was poor, if the furniture was dirty and broken down, if housing was substandard, um, often those children would get removed. Uh, or if there was any kind of issue that raised some concerns about, well, this child may be at risk. We'll just take the child and make sure that, that he or she is safe. And then we learned that when we take these children out and put them in foster homes, that's not good for them either. So first of all, we need to decide whether or not, the court gets to decide whether or not that removal is valid. If it's not, the child goes home and we put services in the home while the child is there. And secondly, if they are removed, then the, the laws require frequent uh, reviews of that case to determine, is mother making progress? Here's the case plan. Here's what mother's charged with doing. Is she doing it? Is she really um, making that a priority? And 
If not, why not? What needs to be done? Do things need to be changed? Are some sanctions put in place? With And we're always holding the thing up here that if we can, after a certain amount of time, a child's been out of home, maybe has started bonding with a foster parent or something like that, that somewhere along the line, a determination needs to be made. Should this child go home or does do all rights need to be terminated and we seek adoption? Um, all, that whole process is overseen by the court. Since you've been doing this for so long, and you've talked about these changes from the 80s, and we're now in 2019, and you're getting ready to retire, if you had a magic wand of something that could be added or a resource or something that would help improve this part of the court, we're going to get to the delinquency in a minute, but the welfare of the child, uh, what type of help or resources or changes do you think need to made, to, whether the laws or the funding or the system itself? Well, I will say that um, there is a huge change coming. In fact, it's practically in progress now. A lot of how the juvenile court operates and the priority and what the juvenile court must do has been um, established by national legislation. And there is the family first legislation that has passed recently that the effective date is 2019. Some states are allowed to uh, get waivers to put all this in place. But it means that a lot of the federal dollars that have gone to support the child welfare system, um, which have gone to foster care, which have gone to uh, providing treatment, a lot of those dollars are going to go into prevention programs. Now, what that's going I mean, and this is what people in the child welfare system have been always have been saying for years begging for i guess begging for it. If, if we can it's a, you know the argument was it's a lot less expensive to prevent these problems from coming than to try to fix them after things break down we'll see uh, so what's going to be on the agenda uh, nationally in all the states is uh, having to put together an array of services and a system that will identify problems before they get to the point of removal, before they get to the point where they have to go to juvenile court and, uh, and put in place um, supportive programs, um, rehabilitative programs. Uh, this, the states will come up with um, various plans and programs that they think will be effective in, in actually preventing um, what has been a growth of, of the dependency cases. Do you have a sense of where that's going to come in? Because that sound, you're saying things that would happen before the court would know something's wrong, Actually, which seems confusing since a court is usually reacting to an action on the outside that brings it to court. Yeah, and this is going to change the role of the court as well because when these prevention plans are put in place, that that is also going to be overseen by the court. The court's going to, it actually, it's like bringing the court into a case before a court case has been established. So it's, it's a huge, um, it's a huge paradigm shift. And, and, and I guess the first question also that pops out for me from that is we're lawyers first. We were trained as lawyers. We weren't necessarily, now some people probably have some background in social work and those kind of things. How is how are the judges going to get trained or add, or is that in the discussion now? Or is you, are you seeing changes in training now? There, Yeah, there will be. Um, in our state, the judges meet 
twice a year for various kinds of training, and I'm sure that the training that's coming up uh, for Georgia judges in um, early October um, will start addressing some of. And, and we've been hearing about a, a lot of a lot of the planning has been going on within the child welfare department and system, and as they develop the programs that they want to put in place, then the judges will learn about those programs and become to, uh, start becoming to an understanding of what exactly we need to do to monitor those, monitor progress, monitor the success of those programs. Um, it's, you know, as you're right, as, as, as lawyers, it seems a little sticky because, you know, we like, you know, we like things to be defined. You're you're guilty or you're not. You're you've got a court case. It's there in the court or it's been dismissed. And so this whole it's it's a. Uh, I'm going to have to do a podcast in a couple months. It sounds like <laughs> and follow this more carefully. Which, you know, because it, it what affects one child affects many. I mean, it may be that you think you'll never have uh, th- those kind of issues in your family, but one you never know when. When your economic circumstances change, um, whether there's a something that a mental health issue happens in your family that all of a sudden you're still, you're dealing with welfare issues that you didn't imagine for your child. A lot of cases are are based on behavioral mental health, and so you were talking about the magic wand. We, we I would love to see a much more robust mental health program that's really established in communities that. Uh, has outreach and has uh, where uh, folks don't have to come look after a problem is developed where there is a kind of outreach and a feel in the community for mental health professionals to start identifying things that could be addressed and invite, um, create situations, forums, uh, venues where education about mental health and behavior health issues can be um presented to the community because there is, I mean, there's there's a certain stigma still to receiving mental health services and it, it keeps some people from addressing things that could and should be addressed much earlier in their experience. And some of those folks end up on, and that's going to lead me to the other side of your work in the court, and that's the delinquency side, which it's an interesting word that we've clung to. That you know, we were saying delinquency of minors, because for if you're an adult, you're arrested and you're a defendant in a criminal case. Um, on the child side, we're saying the word delinquent. We're not calling someone a criminal um, per se. There's there is this distinction made. Um, but the ages have shifted as to, and by location and, and, and states and when you're considered a juvenile if you've committed an offense or whether even as a legal juvenile you can end up in adult court um, because you've commit, alleged to have committed a, a, a murder or some other very serious offense that puts you there. So let's talk about in general the role of you as a judge in, in the basic process of handling a case in which a young person is accused of committing a crime? Well, as I mentioned earlier, um, children who, who are impacted by these sometimes very significant kinds of trauma, sometimes it's a very young child, it affects brain development. 
It affects child emotional development. And so it's not surprising that children that are exposed to that would develop some behavioral problems. And when a four-year-old or five-year-old or eight-year-old is acting out, and some, and it's clear that that child has had a tumultuous kind of family experience, we understand that. So, and I've I've tossed this out to people before. I said, okay, so at eight years old, that's a behaviorally that's a child that's had issues with behavior. What about when they're twelve? What about when they're thirteen or fifteen? At what point? you decide that that child is no longer a victim of the um, trauma. And circumstances that And circumstances they grew up in. Right, education. And at what point then do they, are, they, they become a thug? And that's, um, and, and I think that the way that juvenile, youthful offending, juvenile delinquency crime by teens, however that you want to call it, the way that that gets presented in the public is through the media and it tends to latch on to the serious, violent, uh, sensational kinds of things that young people do. And so it it sort of creates this general thought that if this, you know, if I'm seeing some kid on the street and they're doing things that look to me like that's not what they should be doing, then I'm scared of them. And you know, from your experience, it can be a number of things. I mean, first of all, so mental health issues, you know, we can't, we, we can't diagnose certain things, whether it's schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, till you're much older. And yet it's not that it's already not manifesting at a much younger age. We know, we know that young people's brains develop on a pace, I mean, the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that governs impulsivity and decision-making, the executive function of the brain, doesn't really fully develop until probably the mid-20s. And so kids are are hardwired to make stupid decisions. But there, you know, there's a great deal of lack of understanding or forgiveness for those kids doing that. Do you find in, as a juvenile court judge, though, that when they're in front of you or your colleagues, that you you have that realization and you're then trying to put together a plan? I, I realize that there are juvenile justice um, places where they're incarcerated, but trying to avoid that. And is there a shift to avoid that more than we used to? We've realized that uh, incarcer well, studies show that the incarceration of juveniles does very li- not only does it do very little in terms of actual rehabilitation, it actually makes things worse. Recidivism rates for young people that are locked up as opposed to young people that are put into evidence-based programs. Um, when you say evidence-based programs, what do you mean? These are programs that have been put in place, they've been tried, they they're, they operate in a very specific manner. They usually have a particular curriculum. Um, they The people who do them are taught and trained to conduct those programs in a certain way, and they have been evaluated and studied over time at different places in different environments and found to be effective. Um, these are they're called evidence-based because there has been research and evaluations done and say these these work. Uh, 
And who runs these evidence-based organizations? A number of private organizations do. We have nonprofits. Nonprofits do. Uh, there are people that will be trained to do it, and uh, in the court where I work, um, we have a grant to fund several evidence-based programs for for uh, young people that in the past, when we didn't have those, these would have been the kids that would have been locked up, that have been sent to a state facility because they had really gone too far in the juvenile justice system. And it's designed, uh, one of them is one evidence-based program called Thinking for a Change. And it's an educational program that essentially teaches kids how to think differently. Um, there's another one called Functional Family Therapy, which is an intensive family therapy program. Um, so another, bringing in the parents who may also have struggled with, as an adult, with criminal issues. Yeah, it could. Um, and it then puts, and putting everybody together to see how they're influencing each other exactly. and perhaps making change. So there are programs like that. We, um, um, and, and it's... Um, you know, we still there's still a mindset, and I, you know, when I first came to work at the juvenile court many years ago, you know, I thought, you know, um, I was concerned about kids having guns, and I thought any kid that has a gun ought to spend some time locked up. That would change their behavior, and that was probably not an unusual thing to think at that time. Now I realize that, you know, a kid can find a gun and pick it up and start playing around with it. And of course it's dangerous. But if he gets caught with that gun and I put him in a detention facility where really the, peop the, the young people that ought to be there, I'm going to quote another judge, it's that colleague of mine, Judge Teske, says, we ought to be using detention not for the kids that make us mad, but for the kids that scare us. There are some young people whose behavior is indeed a threat to safe community safety, and they need a much different kind of treatment programs, but sometimes they need to be in a secure facility. But I don't want to put some young person in the company of those folks mixing every day if they don't need to be there. You know, it's interesting you talk about the gun because— uh when I tried my first case as a criminal defense lawyer, it was a murder case of a young man. I think he was 16, maybe seven, being tried as an adult. And I remember they were talking about gang things and all of this stuff, part of the case. But when the police had interviewed my client, um, they asked him about the gun to describe the gun. And he said, it's a black cowboy type gun. And... That was something I argued to the jury. You know, they, they had um, broken into a house, um, stole some things in a uh, shoebox. They found the gun in the house, so they took the gun. Um, my client had said he didn't pull the trigger, and I, I was like, how do you not pull the trigger because you—and it was horrible. I mean, he, he a mother was killed. He said, I promise you, I, you know, he kept saying, I didn't pull it, I didn't pull it. And then I had it checked, and it turned out the original owner had altered the gun for it to be a hair trigger. And that when he pulled up and pointed the gun, she screamed. It caused him to flinch, and he shot and killed her because he didn't. He was just going to point a cowboy gun. You know, and I think that ties into what you're saying, that we have this idea sometimes, and not to say that it doesn't apply across the board, but that 
they are still children and describe things as children and that even at 15, 16, 17, and they're on the cusp of, of adulthood. And I would argue most 18-year-olds clearly don't have know everything that they need to know, um, that it needs some accommodations and shift, like what you're describing as a judge to realize um, they're getting themselves into things much more dangerous because of what's available to them as opposed to them being, quote, worse human yes. beings. Yes. And more dangerous. Anybody who's raised kids, I think, can understand that it, any child, good children, very good children, even can make stupid decisions at age 16, 17. And they don't. You know, a lot of children don't suffer from that because their family and the people that they have around them and the people that support them and look after them and care for them can say, wait a minute, you know, really? You want to do that? Think about this a minute. But if nobody's there to do that, that's a bad road that they're on and they'll, they'll follow it. What about, you know, the other category of cases I guess I see sometimes is young people against other young people in especially male-female relationships, you know, 15, 16, when you socialize at high school, you are with a group of people who are almost predominantly within the ambit of your court, but there's a whole grade level that potentially is an adult. Um, and you put all of that together, how much or what do you see in your court that that results in crimes or alleged crimes um, in between each other without, again, the knowledge of where the parameters are of what you can and can't do? Well, you know, and add to that the fact that young teenagers of that age are, you know, are vials of hormones um, and, um, you know, trying to learn what's okay and and how to function as a evolving man or woman. And again, what kind of environment are they living in and what have they learned about what, what it really means to be a man or a woman? And that doesn't, and that's not a socioeconomic situation because there are plenty of people who have parents who are of a wealthy you know, and they're not getting taught that the discussions are not happening or that need to happen. It's not just a one-sided with their matter of um, socioeconomic situations, racial, ethnic situations. And we, we're exposed to a lot of media, a lot of adult, adult material, and then no other accompanying explanation that, oh, yeah, by the way, if you do that, that's completely illegal. Yeah. Depending had, on your state and jurisdiction. Yeah, I had the what really was a privilege of spending about 12 years working with a um, program that ultimately was a youth empowerment program. And in involving myself in that program, I met with a number of kids um, every week. And over that period of time, some kids would come in, and, you know, 12 years, they'd get old and they'd move out and other kids come in. And these were these were kids that had some some difficulties themselves, and one of them uh, made his way in there, and he eventually realized that he kind of recognized me because I, as a prosecutor, had uh, prosecuted a case against him and asked him to be locked up. It turned out that um, 
he became a leader in that group, along with another young fellow who right now is a pretty successful hip-hop artist. And they started... Can you tell us who? Killer Mike. How about Um, that? um, And they started having this conversation with each other. And they said, you know, we got bad information. Some of what got us in trouble is people told us the wrong stuff. And these, we, we ought to do something to try to get some good information to these younger kids so that they don't fall into the same kind of um, mistakes that we've made. And so they actually started working on a curriculum that they started taking into the elementary and middle schools and doing an after-school program for a while, just say, look, some of what you're hearing in right. Because the the law says ignorance of the law is no excuse, and yet you're tapping into, we don't do such a good job at teaching the law. Yeah. But some folks, even going through it, understand and and spread the news, such as Killer Mike and other activists who are out there trying to say, you know, there's a different way. Mm -hmm. And it's... um, encouraging to hear a judge realize and and you to be so candid about the shifts you've seen over time um because we you know it's so easy to get in the law in the one way it's magical because it changes and yet in other ways that changes sometimes very slow but it seems to be that we finally are in a period of rapid change um, and realization of what is it that we are doing with the courts and that it's punishment is not always, it shouldn't really be the goal. It's a better society. You know, I think I mentioned this these 12 years or so that I was with this organization, and frankly, to me, it was life-changing, and I, you know, I am forever grateful for that time because I think it made me a better person and a better judge because the focus on that, of that was listening when we talk about youth leadership, it wasn't creating programs for kids to do and participating in. It was saying to the kids, what's going on in your world? What would you like to change and how can we help you do that? And that led to the adults in the program learning how to listen to young people because we don't do that very well. And when you actually listen to what young people have to say, and, and sometimes they don't, it's hard to hear that because they, young people aren't used to adults wanting to hear that. You know, when you have a conversation with a kid, you know, really you're letting them talk, but what you're doing is thinking what I want to say next. But if you listen to and can get young people to talk and, and let you know what they think, they've got some great ideas. They they have some thoughts and, some, and a lot of what they think in, can make sense. If if we could all find an, a, a venue, find a way, and adopt a commitment to, you know, that kid bothers me or whatever. I want to hear what he's got to say. I want to, I want to listen to him. I want to listen to her. If they, if that be, that behavior is coming from somewhere, tell me about that. I think the way we might react and the way we might respond to young people could be very different. That is heartening to hear. It, it truly is because, you know, we, you're so used to, I think, in general, thinking of the judge speaking down. You know, you're sitting up higher than everybody else in the courtroom. And so to hear that the court wants to hear from a young person um, 
And I think there is a lot of shifting going on with the judiciary in terms of the relationships of all the parties that are present, whether it's in both juvenile court and the adult courts of trying to realizing, you know, the numbers are bringing the system down, how many people are having to be involved with the courts, and that perhaps listening, as opposed to making assumptions, could get us into a better place. It can be life-changing both for the listen, person listening and the person being listened to. It's life-changing. So while we've been having this wonderful conversation, I can't thank you enough. And, and I am so pleased to have had this time. I've heard of you. I haven't been before you. It's been really lovely. And I was trying to think about what tea to have, because with every episode of Law Talk with VJ, we have a different cup of tea. And I chose chamomile tea, not Usually I talk about the uh, metabolical different or spiritual benefits of the tea, but this one was because of the children's story, Peter Rabbit, since we're talking about children. And his mother gave him chamomile tea to get well. And after what you've said this whole time, I'm warm and fuzzy realizing we're building a judiciary who wants our children to be well. And I hope that that is Beyond you, I'm thinking from what you say it is, although you have a special heart for having been at this for so long. So thank you for sharing with our audience. And um, here's to faith in the future. And we'll click our little <laughs> mugs and thank everyone for listening. Thank, thank you. Thank you, EJ. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire. <laughs>